And here we are. It is episode number seven of the Catamount Chronicles. All things UVM all the time. Talking with some of the biggest names in Catamount history, past and present. All thanks to Sobu Stretch, a boutique yoga studio off Shelburne Road in South Burlington, and the Strike Zone Baseball Academy in Essex Junction. Fitting sponsor for today's episode, a guy who had a 12-year Major League Baseball career, a member of the UVM Athletics Hall of Fame. He played for the Angels and the White Sox in Major League Baseball. He was also an All-American in hockey for the Cats and drafted uh, into the NHL by the Winnipeg Jets. Kirk McCaskill. Kirk, how are you? Brady, uh, nice to see you. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm out here in San Diego. A uh, little warm and humid for us, but uh, <laughs> we're doing pretty well, all things considered. Well, I appreciate you joining me. You are a guy that I have wanted to track down for a while, and in three and a half years here, four years actually, this is the first time we're ever talking, and people have been clamoring to hear from you, so I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Well, the clamoring is probably too big of a word, but uh, it's nice to be with you. Well, let me ask you this. Probably a question you've been asked a hundred times in your life. How hard was it for you to eventually make the choice between baseball and hockey because you were great at both of them, all things considered? Well, you know, it, it, I didn't think it was difficult. Um, and things just sort of played out. You know, I, I always loved both sports, and I loved playing both sports. And, you know, some of my fondest memories are at UVM going from, you know, a couple-hour hockey practice, putting on my baseball cleats, and then shooting over into the field house and, and throwing a bullpen and stuff. Uh, but, you know, things kind of became clear uh, right near the end. Once I, once I signed to play, uh, you know, in, in professional hockey, uh, it was pretty clear that that there was a lot of uh, uh, players that were a lot better than I was in, in hockey, but in baseball I was sort of really kind of moving up. Uh, had had just kind of completed double A, so in the end, you know, uh, it was a pretty clear decision. I don't know if you could do what you did now, just given the strengths of each sport physically and the schedule and workouts, et cetera. What was it like? So you get drafted in 81 by Winnipeg, 82 by the Angels. Now you played both professionally, AHL, minor league baseball. How did the timelines work out for you? Well, that's interesting. Um, so I actually signed with the Angels after my junior year. Okay. Uh, I got uh, $22,000 hmm. as a fourth round pick. And uh, because I signed, I lost my hockey scholarship, but I wanted to continue playing hockey. So um, I just uh, paid to come back to U uh, UVM and we continued, uh, uh, you know, the same sort of routine, uh, training for hockey, training for the hockey season and, and still throwing. And then, uh, you know, halfway through the year, I got invited to big league camp, which was very unusual for a guy that just finished rookie ball. And Coach Cross actually drove me home after a game. And he said, you know, I think you should go um, and, and go to spring training with the Angels. And at the time, you know, they had Freddie Lynn, Rod Carew, yeah. Reggie Jackson. I mean, there's all these Hall of Famers. And Coach Cross was like, you know, you might never get this opportunity again. You know, UVM was kind of struggling at the time. We weren't going to make the playoffs. And he said, you know, you've done everything you can do in your college hockey world. So I took his advice and I, and I, I went to uh, camp with the Angels and, and, and left UVM in January. So, um um, after that, I, I kind of got through a ball and double a, and then out of nowhere, the offer came from Winnipeg, uh, and the timing of the sports, you know, actually worked out pretty well. So I went to camp with the jets. I played nine exhibition games, played the year in the American hockey league. And when that was over, you know, it was time to start spring training again. So I missed a little bit of spring training in, uh, 83, but, um, uh, they sent me to, uh, the, um, Edmonton 
Trappers, which is AAA, but they, at the time, because it was so cold in Edmonton, they were all the games were down in Phoenix and Albuquerque and Vegas. So uh, I did my spring training there, and then they ended up just keeping me in AAA that year. Were all sides okay with this arrangement? Was it just different back then where it was more accepted? Because I remember, you know, even in the 90s, okay, Deion Sanders' controversy between the Falcons and the Braves. Was it more accepted back in the early 80s? Well, you know, uh, back then, we, you know, unlike today, we played every and all sport we could, you know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I played tennis. Uh, I played, you know, obviously hockey and baseball. Uh, loved basketball. Uh, so these days kids tend to specialize pretty early and it's really rare to get, uh, you know, a dual sport athlete, even in high school, I, I coached, uh, seven years of high school baseball out here and we only had a couple of baseball players that were dual sport athletes. Wow. Unbelievable. Was, was the ability to play two sports always your plan in college? And is that part of what drove you to UVM was the ability that you could do both? No, not really. You know, my dad was a professional hockey player. He was, uh, yep. a 21 year a uh, minor league player in 21 years, he played four games in the NH in the uh, national. Wow. And so, you know, I, hockey was my love. And I, and I was, I came to UVM on a, on a hockey scholarship uh, with every intention of, of kind of, you know, focusing just on hockey. Um, I had had a good summer prior to coming to UV, UVM in Phoenix uh, because I went to the small prep school uh, in New York, no scout. I was kind of unscouted in the baseball realm. And that summer, uh, I played on a pretty good team in Phoenix and a bunch of scouts started coming out. And that was sort of the time I realized that maybe I had something uh, baseball wise, but really not until then, which was uh, interesting. I won't ask you to speak for your dad, but 21 year minor league career. We always hear all the time in baseball, a guy who spends six, seven years in the minors, grinds and gets that one at bat. I get 21 years in the minors for four major league games. I mean, shout out to your dad just for the perseverance alone. Oh, he's got so many stories. I mean, he was in, you know, the slap shot world. Um, he huh. played in the Eastern Hockey League. There was actually one of the characters in slap. He was in slap shot. And Your dad was in slap shot? He was in slap shot. And one of the characters was actually kind of modeled after my dad. Uh, I guess my dad had a tendency to use the stick quite a bit. And uh, so he was, uh, he, their stories were so funny. Uh, and you know, he just loved the game. He, all his buddies loved it, and that's just what they wanted to do. What was his role in Slapshot? Because I've talked to Alan Nichols, who I believe also went to UVM, who was in Slapshot. I've talked to him before. So what was your dad's role? My dad's role, he didn't have any speaking lines. but Okay. In the first game Probably of, better for that movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. And <laughs> the first movie that the Hanson brothers kind of broke out and all the fighting started, my dad actually was fighting with Paul Newman. And so you got to see a lot of his bald uh, head uh, kind of holding up Newman. But he tells a pretty funny story about the first the first uh, shot when they said, all right, ready, action. And he kind of grabbed Newman and aggressively and Newman goes down and they stopped and they cut. And they said, Teddy, you got to be you got to go easy on Paul. He's not that good on his skates. And so he had, <laughs> so he had some good stories about it. You know, you get up to the major leagues, your first year with the Angels is 85. You're 24 years old. You win 12 games right away. You win 17 the next year. So really, you come out of the gate really strong in your career. What was it like for you to experience that much success early in your career? Well, you know, it was interesting. I hadn't played all that much baseball. I think that's one of the reasons why the Angels were so interested. You know, growing up, there was years where I didn't, I didn't play Little League or I, wow. I didn't play uh, my freshman year in high school, things like that. So, um, you know... I didn't have the greatest minor league success either. You know, I, I did well at times, 
But uh, my stuff was pretty good. Uh, manager Gene Mock had come out to see me throw an instructional ball, and he talked to me, and I sort of understood that I might have had a shot if someone was going to go down. And, you know, the Angels had two pitchers go down, and I came up, and I had a good first start. I had a rough uh, start. I think I was 0-4 in my first seven starts. Wow. Uh, and then sort of figured it out a little bit. I had a, you know, I, who I consider to be the greatest catchy receiver of all time, Bob Boone, and I just sort of followed his lead. And things went really well the first two years. Then I, I kind of ran into some injuries and, uh, and you know, was, you know, uh, up and down going fo- uh, forward from there. But, yeah, it was a good start. And, uh, I mean, I, I loved it. I loved uh, playing in the big leagues. I loved being a part of the Angels organization. It was, it was great. You know, my, you, it's really interesting. You have a, an interesting crossroads with my family just in the fact that I was born in Southern California. My family is original Angels season ticket holders. Um, so my mom spent many, many days at Angels Stadium. My dad's a White Sox fan. So um, you played for both the teams that my family grew up watching. I think it was that second year you almost threw a no-hitter, right? Three outs away against Toronto? Yep. Yeah. Um, Nelson Liriano came off the bench to break it up. Um, so that I, th- I threw two one-hitters. The, the other one was uh, I gave up a home run to Steve Bouchelle in uh in texas but uh, that was as close as i got that was fun yeah but nelson liriano had bro- also broken up nolan ryan's no hit bid five days earlier in uh, toronto so what was it like playing with nolan ryan i didn't play with nolan sorry he, oh, was, well, he was with the rangers then yeah. oh i see okay okay i was like i didn't think nolan ryan was with the angels yeah. then but uh um what's the adrenaline like when you're three outs away from a no hitter and were you at like 174 pitches back then like what were they letting you through? yeah you know uh you know, it's just one of one of those days where you're just in the zone, and and I thought, you know, you think you'd be a lot more nervous going out, uh, trying to close that out, but uh, in that case, I wasn't. Uh, I was just really, you know, part of that success was I was just locked in, you know, pitch by pitch, just trying to make pitches, and uh, you know, it didn't happen. It would have been fun, but uh, uh, you know, it got close. When you mentioned those injuries, and I've been, you know, a, a theme of some of the interviews that I've had in the past couple episodes of this has been perseverance for people. Um, as you battle through those injuries and you go through a couple seasons where you don't get as many appearances as you want or you don't have the record that you want, what were you dealing with? Shoulder, elbow, back? What was going for you? I had, uh, I had two elbow surgeries. The first one just came out of the blue. I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling anything. And then all of a sudden I was pitching in Seattle and my elbow really started barking. And I had to get a, uh, some bone spurs removed out of my elbow. And so I had two surgeries with the elbow. I had some back problems, but, uh, um, you know, there was, you know, it's challenging for everybody. Everybody's going through, uh, nobody gets through a full season, you know, uh, injury free, whether it's, you know, soft tissue or, you know, uh, uh, more, more serious. What was it like? at the major league level then in terms of recovery, workout programs, et cetera, because it's become so different in the last 15 years in terms of workout and flexibility and yoga and weight training and all that. What was it like back then? Were you kind of left on your own? Was there a dedicated plan from the team? Well, when I first got to, you know, uh, the angels in 85, there was, there was really uh, not much going on. The, the, the big orthopedic group in LA, uh, Job Curlin had just come out with the, shoulder exercises that pitchers should be doing. But basically we were training the wrong way. You know, we were doing a lot of distance running. Uh, we weren't lifting any weights at all. Uh, we were just doing the small muscle, muscular kind of exercises for our shoulders. Uh, and, you know, as it, as it came along, it, you know, they started to realize that, uh, you know, you needed more explosive training. And, and then when I got to the White Sox in 92, uh, they had a strength and conditioning coach named Steve Rogers, who was fantastic. And that's when we first started throwing, 
you know, medicine balls, we started lifting a little more, uh, but now it's completely changed. You know, the guys are, are really in the gym a lot and, um, and, you know, doing a lot more explosive kind of activities. As you coach high school baseball, you said you did for seven years in the San Diego area. How unbelievably different is the high school baseball culture now than versus when you played? Because, like, I, I graduated high school in 2008. I played high school baseball. It's way different even from where I was. But how crazy is it, Southern California high school baseball scene? Well, it's, it's very good baseball here for sure. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I loved the kids. I loved uh, working with them every day. I go to the field every day because I'm retired. And if they wanted it, uh, we were there for them. Uh, and we had some really dedicated kids who love baseball. The only issue, the only frustration I think I had was this dichotomy between travel baseball and high school baseball. And, um, and you know, I used to tell the kids that, you know, the high school season is going to mimic the college season a lot more than your travel ball season is. Yeah. Because, you know, your stats go away every weekend in travel ball. And here in high school, when we play 35 games, you know, you've got a body of work. And you know, we're going to ask you to do a lot of other th- things in high school, like support your teammates and not just care about yourself. And yeah. uh, and so there's some real stark differences. And uh, I'm a big proponent of high school sports. Uh, travel sports is obviously kind of taking over the world. But uh, I liked having, you know, the group together, supporting each other, fighting to win every day, those sort of things. Catamount Chronicles is brought to you by Sobu Stretch Boutique Yoga Studio, Meditation Studio in South Burlington off Shelburne Road. $5 off your first class. You're going to see it flashing on the screen here if you mention the promo code BRADY5. So you get $5 off, again, your first session. Virtual, in-person, social distancing, CDC guidelines, whatever you want, they've got. So Sobu Stretch in South Burlington. Um, all right, Bill Courier, who's uh, your former teammate at UVM, right? Now the, now the head coach at Fairfield, former coach at UVM. He told me it was okay to ask this. I won't if it's a sore spot, but how long when you're at a party until you get the Griffey question? Yeah, I get it a lot. Um, you know, um, I'm not remotely embarrassed by the Griffey okay. question at all. So yeah. for those who don't know, you were the pitcher, what, 1990, I believe? It's Griffey Sr., Griffey Jr., back-to-back, only father-son duo to go back-to-back. You were the pitcher. I'm glad you're not embarrassed because I was nervous to ask the question. No need to be. You know, okay. um the way I look at it, Brady, there was it's going to happen once in the universe. I mean, it will never happen again. It's a one-off. Uh, the Angels won the game. That's important. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing that that happened. And uh, I was actually, uh, you know, proud to be a part of it. So I'm a diehard Mariners fan. Like I told you, my, my I, li- I was born in Southern California, but we quickly moved to Seattle. So I'm a diehard Mariners fan. I've been through 30 years of agony and nothing. But the only memories I have that are any good are these Griffey highlights. That's all I have as a Mariners fan. The thing that amazes me most is not even the back-to-back home runs, that there is nobody in center field at all. Left center field, there's not one person there. That's the thing that amazes me most about those highlights. You know, there was – it was in Anaheim. And I don't know. Yep. We might have had – close to 30,000. But at that time, you know, in Anaheim Stadium, there was, you know, it it seated, I think, 66,000 people because the Rams were playing there as well, right? Okay. Is that what you mean? Like there was no fans there? Yeah, there's no, I mean, I think, I think Devon White is the, is the center fielder. He goes back and there's nobody there. There's nobody Nobody, around. Yeah, nobody there. There was about 30,000, I would say. And uh, the most amazing thing to me is that, you know, the uh, junior's home run was a 3-0 pitch, you know, and, and if you look at it, I mean, it wasn't that bad for a 3-0 pitch, and it just goes to show you how talented that guy is, obviously. he's He had set his mind that he was going to try to do this, and he was going to swing 3-0. and You know, and he hits it the other way. It's a little two-seamer two that runs away from him a little bit, and he just crushed it. And, 
it's like the whole place didn't realize what was happening until, you know, junior got to second base and then kind of, you know, broke out in applause and it was pretty cool. At what point in your life did you stop? Or I guess, were you, were you annoyed by that question and then eventually got over it or instantly were you like, okay, this is going to be cool for the history of the world. Instantly knew it would never happen again. I mean, mm. I think uh, senior was 40 and yeah. junior was 19, I think, maybe 20. I believe so. So, you know, first of all, father and son playing on the same team might happen again, right? Yep. Um, you know, it, it, hitting in, you know, consecutively in the lineup, that could happen, but they'll never hit back-to-back. Right? It just won't happen. Now, you had a chance, I'm sure, to face Griffey more times in your career as he got really, really good, maybe probably the best player in baseball into the mid-'90s. Was he the best player you ever pitched against? That's a great question because – you know, I can look at uh, a lot of guys like, you know, George Brett and yeah. Jim Rice and Don Mattingly. And so uh, Junior was obviously, you know, when you're in it, you, you don't think about those kind of things. Uh, that's sort of retrospection, I guess. But, you know, I would say that George Brett might have been the best hitter I ever faced. And what would have made him so challenging? I just pictured George Brett crowding the plate, dirt dog, just tough as nails. That's how I picture George Brett being. Well, like every great hitter, they've got a, a tremendous eye. So, you know, you think you make, you know, your out pitch to them and, and it's a ball and they spit on it uh, or they foul it off. And then, you know, those guys look a lot like Wade Boggs. He could yeah. foul off your best pitch, you know. And so now you've got to continue to make your best pitch to them. Uh, and if you miss, they're going to whack it. So, you know, George was great at it, as were, you know, some other guys. You talk about the guys who came up with, with the Angels. As you get to the White Sox in the 90s, you play with Frank Thomas. You play with some great players there. Who's the best player you played with looking back? Probably Frank. Uh, Frank was doing things that no one was doing. You know, I think he had three consecutive years where he had, you know, 30-plus home runs, 100 walks, uh, 100 runs. I mean, Frank was just doing things that were unheard of at the time. So he was probably the best player uh, that I ever played with. And you got him – at a point in his career where he was able to play the field. I mean, he became a DH later in his career, but he was a pretty good first baseman in those early years too. Brady, I would not go that far. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't <laughs> well, say that Frank was a pretty good first baseman. All right. Well then I'm, I'm remembering, I'm having revisionist history in my yeah. own mind there. Yeah. yeah um, he, didn't need to be. he didn't need to be. As long as he could catch it, that's all that matters. You know, I think I probably got the time frame right, but I didn't research for this question. So I mentioned my dad's a White Sox fan, so I've grown up watching a lot of White Sox games. Hawk Harrelson, the announcer, gets a lot of grief. Now he's not the announcer anymore, but he got a lot of grief. I have to assume he was the announcer for while you were in Chicago. I just need what was Hawk Harrelson like the person? Because I actually like listening to him. Yeah, Hawk was great. You know, he was probably one of the original homers, you know. He yeah. was he was rooting for the Sox. And uh, but he was a real character, you know, he's He's uh, even back when he played, he was like a very stylish dresser yeah. and he would always wear hats that uh, hats that say Hawk on them. And uh, <laughs> but I enjoyed playing golf with Hawk more than anything else. He was he was an unbelievably good golfer. You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not old enough to know how good Hawk was, but you better be pretty darn good if you're going to start branding yourself Hawk while yeah. you're still playing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, now I want to move over to what you're doing now. So you coached high school for seven years. What What are you doing now? What's your level of involvement in the game? Are you watching it? Are you following? It? Are you disconnected? What are you doing now? I'm just really a fan more than anything else. So uh, after stepping away from the high school game, a uh, buddy of mine, we're doing, you know, a few pitching lessons and things like that. But uh, uh, I'm not that involved. I'm playing a lot of golf. 
um, traveling in the RV quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just enjoying retirement, uh, even though I've been retired for a long time. Do you like where the game is at now? It's certainly different. Um, more style, more flair in some ways, um, going against the unwritten rules, et cetera, a lot more homers and strikeouts, et cetera. Do you like where the game is at now? Not really. I mean, I, I, I like um, I like the joy and the passion that these young guys are showing when they're playing yep. uh, with the game. Uh, the unwritten rules are they're, they're being rewritten, I, you know, so, you know, I don't have a problem with all that stuff. That's probably natural. That's, that's going to happen. I mean, I think it, Joe Madden was saying the other day, you know, the unwritten rules were written, quote unquote, you know, when it took 10 hits to get six runs, you know, and mm-hmm. now you can that can happen in an instant. So uh, but I, I don't love the individualism in the game. Um, you know, to me, uh, I'm a little old school in that regard. I think you should wear the uniform the right way and and respect the uniform and respect the other team and things like that. So, uh, but overall, I mean, the talent level is unbelievable. I don't love this, this you know, uh, strikeout or hit a home run style game either. It's, to me, it's not as enjoyable as, you know, some of the nuances of of, uh, of the game. So I'm sort of in the middle of the road, I think. I'm not as, I'm not a crusty old grandpa yelling, get off my lawn, but, but uh, I'd, I'd still like to see a little more respect in the game for, the someone, and for your own uh, organization. As someone who grew up watching baseball in the in the early 90s, Ricky Henderson, Vince Coleman, who played on some of the Mariner teams that I liked, you talk about kind of the old way of playing, you know, get them on, get them over, get them in. I got to ask, what was it like pitching when Ricky Henderson's on the base bats? Well, you know, one of the along those lines, one of the interesting things is when I was playing with the Angels, Gene Mock, our manager, was a big believer and, you know, the stats weren't all that prevalent, but he was a big believer that if you scored first, you, you were, the chances were you're going to win the game. So, you know, we'd have, we'd be playing the A's and we'd have Brian Downing get on in the first inning and we'd give up and out and bunt him over yeah. and maybe score him. But we're like, do you think we're really just going to hold the A's to one or two runs? I mean, the, their offense was incredible. So um, the game was sort of starting to change then. And, you know, it was a, you know, it was a difficult time because it was the steroid era, but, you know, uh, I'd say that was the genesis of really, you know, the big offenses coming around and and that sort of thing. Well, you mentioned those A's, not only Ricky Henderson, but that's early McGuire, Canseco, as we talk about going into the late 80s and then into the 90s. I won't ask you to out names or anything, but did you know there was a steroid issue in the game at the time you were playing? Were you aware yeah. that it was there? Yeah, I never saw I never saw anything, but uh, it was pretty apparent that it was there. Hmm. And, um, you know, guys were I, – I started to notice that, Guys were hitting home runs without squaring up the ball. You know, yeah. you'd see in the slow mo that the ball would be sort of off the top of the bat, and it'd still go out. Or the fact that there was never really any pop ups anymore. There was fly balls to outfielders, but not not too many infield pop ups. So um, things like that were, you know, you could see were changing the game. Did you ever? notice it being used by pitchers as well because i think again i'm I'm 30 years old so i have this vision in my mind that oh back in the 80s everybody was like 88 to 92 when you had your occasional clemens who threw 95 96 but then as your career goes on you see more and more guys 94 96 i mean did you see just a natural evolution or did you think "Eh, something's going on with the pitchers too uh you know i didn't really think that i I assume there was a a percentage of players pitchers and players you know doing steroids but uh you know, uh, you know, honestly, at that time, even though we considered it cheating, it wasn't illegal. There was nothing uh, stated about it. There was no testing. So, you know, it was just something we lived with. But, um, you know, uh, on, the, on the fastball issue, you know, I think there was two things that happened. One, the, you know, the gun is 
the radar gun is totally different now yeah. than it was. I think it measured our pitches halfway to the plate, whereas now it measures it right out of the hand. And two, you know, velocity is is a big part of, uh, you know, training now, even as a youngster. Uh, there's, you know, that's what everybody's trying to do. There's a recognition now that you can't get to the big leagues unless you throw 95. Whereas when I was playing, it was more about your repertoire and your mix and and whether you had uh, three or four pitches, not just one or two. Now, you spent your whole career in the American League, so and there was no interleague play, I believe, maybe the last year of your career, but it, no, you might have right. just missed it. So, yes. so you didn't get a chance to go up against Greg Maddox or see him in, on the other side or anything, but who was a pitcher that you watched on the other side? You were like, damn, that guy's pretty special. Yeah, I think Maddox is the guy. You hit it for me. I mean, to see that kind of movement and uh, location – it was just phenomenal. You know, he'd have Charlie O'Brien sitting out there about six yeah. inches outside and he would dot the glove every time. And I think Maddox, all things considered, is the greatest right-handed pitcher in the modern era. You know, he, I don't know how many games he won, but pretty apparent he didn't, uh, he didn't you know, use any performance-enhancing drugs to, to be who he was. And he was, he was just phenomenal. I was always amazed by Maddox. You mentioned Charlie O'Brien, that he had the personal catcher and like Javi Lopez could rake back in the day, but he always went with Charlie O'Brien or Eddie Perez. Like you got to be pretty damn good to be knocking out the, the catcher who's going to hit 35 homers for you one every five days. Well, just like I was saying about trying to hold the A's down to, you know, just a few runs. Well, Maddox could do that. So yeah, he was going to hold every team down to just one or two runs. So the offense from that position probably didn't matter as much. You're going to see it flash on the bottom of your screen. Catamount Chronicles, episode number seven with Kirk McCaskill, brought to you by the Strike Zone Baseball Academy in Essex Junction. You get a free evaluation of your baseball skills by mentioning this podcast. I can be the guy that gives you that free evaluation. They've got all the latest technology, hit tracks and Rapsodo machines. So all the technical lingo you hear at the major league level, they've got. You can also just rent out the batting cage with your friends as well, birthday parties, et cetera. So free evaluation of your baseball skills by mentioning this podcast. Coaching for seven years in, in San Diego and the baseball that you've seen, I got at, I'm sure you've either coached somebody or coached against somebody who's gone on to do some pretty big things. Who have you seen at the high school level before they were stars? Well, you know, uh, uh, there's quite a few here. Uh, Trevor Williams, who's with the, the Pirates, yeah. uh, he was pitching at uh, Rancho Bernardo. Alex Jackson, who's a kid with the Braves, uh, he was the best high school player I saw. He Former Mariners draft pick who they traded yeah. away, of course, typical. Yeah. Alex was, uh, you know, by far the best high school player I saw. He holds, holds the San Diego record for, I think he hit like 55 home runs in his high school career or something like that. Um, uh, let's see, uh, Garrett Stubbs with the Astros. Yeah. Uh, he's from Torrey Pines. So there's there's been quite a few of them. Pretty unbelievable, just baseball area down there. Um now, this is going to come out in a couple of weeks, so maybe it will change by then, but the Padres are red hot as I as we record this. Are people down there, are they all in on the Padres? Are they still kind of, I don't want to say an afterthought, that's too strong, but what's the, the fandom for the Padres like in Southern California? You know, it's, it's never been better. Um, the last time uh, it was like this was 98 when the Pods had a lot of superstar players, and they I think they went to the World Series in 98. Yeah. Um, and uh, but this young group of, of guys has really, uh, you know, taken over the city. I mean, slam we're you know, we're slam Diego now. Yeah. <laughs> five grand slams in like, what last seven games, something like that. Four in a row. So uh, when you have a player like Tatis, you know, so young and so talented and so energetic and plays with that kind of passion, you know, I think that uh, it's inevitable that he's going to kind of bring the city along with him. 
So we talk about the unwritten rules, and as we taped this last week, it's Tatis is in trouble for swinging at a 3-0 pitch and hitting the grand slam. You as a pitcher, do you have a problem with that? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, there are unwritten rules, right? You know, you yeah. can't say there aren't. I think they're just fluid. Like, what if the score if the score was 20 to nothing? It would have been wrong. Yes. You know, uh, so there's a, there's a number where it's wrong, but I think based on the way the game is changing, that we just don't know what it is. Um, so, you, you know, you had – Woodward as in the Rangers dugout, uh, upset about it. And I think even, you know, uh, Tingler was, he was concerned that it might've been the wrong thing to do. So I just, I don't, I don't think everybody knows where that number is. I don't think that was, I, I don't think six runs in the eighth is probably out of line, you know, because the offenses are so explosive now. So, uh, but there is a, there is a, there is a number and it's just a matter of, you know, and like I said, there's got to be some respect for the opponent, and I don't know what that number is, but I'd like to see that acknowledged. You know, yeah, I um, I didn't have a problem with it from the from the game standpoint. I would have had a problem with it if I was the opposing pitcher because now I've loaded the bases. I'm three zero. I'm clearly kind of being hung out to dry here. Now, I, from a pride standpoint, I'm like, look, I'd rather just walk the run and let you pull me for a little sense of relief. Now you're going to add insult to injury and the grand slam happens. So I personally am mad as the pitcher, but I don't think I'm mad for the game itself. Well, he got himself into that situation, you know, and, uh, you know, the, it's a tough one, though, because Tatis probably gets the same pitch 3-1 that he gets 3-0, but, yeah. um, you know, um, and then, you know, the Padres were saying that he missed the sign, and I, I don't know what happened. I don't, even, I don't even know if there's a take sign in the big league. So. <laughs> Do they coach that stuff into you at the minor league level? Because clearly these unwritten rules are pretty universally known and pretty universally adopted. I have to imagine that somewhere the unwritten rules are getting pumped into you at the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah, but not, not like verbally, not like – not like they're written rules, you know, they're, yeah. they're unwritten and you got to kind of figure them out as you go along. And, and when there's emotions and passion involved, sometimes, you know, uh, the unwritten rules vary from player to player and team to team. So you just have to learn as you go. I'll get you out of here on a couple quicker questions. Um, one, do you follow UVM athletics now in any way? Obviously there's no baseball to follow, but hockey is down, but they have been good. Basketball is very good. Are you following UVM at all these days? I do. I follow UVM sports on, I'm not a big social media guy, but I do know uh, the Twitter as we, as the old men call it. <laughs> so I follow uh, UVM athletics on Twitter and, uh, and on my computer and uh, always looking for them to do great things. I think this is a tremendous hire for the hockey team. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, you know, the renovation of the athletic complex will uh, help, help things out. So yeah, I, I still follow it pr pretty passionately. What as someone who's like I have to imagine that the facilities at your high school you coached at are great just being where you are and you've seen high level college baseball facilities. As UVM transforms the gut into a more modern facility, how important is it to have those those modern facilities versus honoring old tradition? Yeah, that's a. Uh, I was back at uh, my son uh, was going to Dartmouth, and so we took a drive up to Burlington, and I showed him the gut, and I mean he thought it was the coolest thing in the world, you know, to yeah. see how old and traditional it was. But I do understand that if you want to compete, you know, and you can lose recruits to facilities, um, then you, you've got to step it up. And, and you, don't, you, want to, you don't want to have that happen. I think hopefully what's going to happen will be the right mix of, of, of new and old. You know, I can't promise you that I will know what it is since I've only been here four years, but I always like to ask the question, favorite place to eat 
in Burlington? It, it doesn't have to exist anymore, but a place that was a go-to for you. Wow. Uh, you know, I'm almost 60, Brady. I can, I can barely remember. Nectar's was great. <laughs> Nectar's and, is still there. still there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say Nectar's. Nectar's is still there. So uh, Al's French Fries is the one that everybody comes up with, and there's another one that I've heard heard of and been to. So um, Kirk McCaskill, hey, I appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. Member of the UVM Athletics Hall of Fame, 12-year Major League Baseball career, also drafted um, into the NHL by the Winnipeg Jets, played in the AHL. Uh, great stories. We'll have to do it again sometime for sure. I appreciate you doing this. Anytime, Brady. Best of luck.